Thank you for downloading this audio edition of a complete chapter from the volume entitled On Common Ground, International Perspectives on the Community Land Trust. I'm John Emmius Davis, one of the book's editors, along with my colleagues Lena Algood and Maria Hernandez-Torales. On Common Ground was published in June 2020 by Terra Nostra Press, a division of the Center for CLT Innovation. We hope that you enjoy the following program. Chapter 23, A Reflection on the Bioethics of Community Land Trusts, written by Maria E. Hernandez-Torales, read by Susan Allen Craig. That the house of everyone is to him as his castle and fortress as well for defense against injury and violence as for his repose. Sir Edward Coke, 1552-1634, English Judge and Jurist. Housing is a topic that invites us and summons us. It invites us to reflect on the meaning of housing with regard to the development of human beings. It also summons us to act, moving from passive reflection to active intervention in order to secure the well-being of those who lack the means to satisfy the fundamental right to housing. We shall focus here on the Community Land Trust, CLT, a nonprofit organization that is built around the strategy of acquiring and holding land for the purpose of satisfying the common needs of a place-based community, such as the provision of land for affordable housing or for farming and food security. The CLT can be analyzed from two basic perspectives. The first perspective is organizational, examining the structure that ensures that a CLT's objectives are met. The second perspective is moral, pertaining to the values that move human beings to work for other human beings who lack fundamental rights, such as the right to housing and food. Our attention will be directed mostly toward this last perspective, demonstrating that the CLT is an ethical model to pursue. We will analyze the moral values that inspire community-based nonprofit organizations to embrace this practice, motivating them to establish a CLT. We will use a bioethical analysis, a comprehensive perspective that takes into consideration not only the needs and development of human beings, but also our relationship with everything that surrounds us as inhabitants of a planet where resources are finite. By examining the CLT model from a bioethical standpoint, we focus predominantly on the balance between the personal interests of individuals and the collective interests through which a community is formed. From this standpoint, we conclude and affirm that the CLT is an ethical model, one imbued with a particular set of values pertaining to satisfaction of a right to housing and a right to a decent life. In this regard, a CLT walks a path and reaches a destination that is distinct and separate from the path typically followed by a fragmented and individualistic society. Bioethics as a Tool for Analysis and Reflection In the essay, The Land Ethic, of his classic book, A Sand County Almanac, Aldo Leopold reflected on how human beings are part of a bigger ecological system and how together, characteristics of the earth and of the people who inhabit it 
determine the course of historical events. Additionally, all ethics are sustained by the belief that every individual is a member of a community composed of interdependent parts. Accordingly, an individual's ethics, guiding personal action in complicated or new situations, move him or her toward collaboration with other community members. The term bioethics was coined in 1971 by Van Rensselaer Potter in his monograph Bioethics, Bridge to the Future. The publication's lofty purpose was to contribute to the future of humanity by uniting two cultures, science and humanities, through the formation of a new discipline which he called bioethics. Potter stated that all ethics imply action aligned with moral standards. He specified that it is necessary to remember that ethics have to be accompanied by a realistic understanding of the relationships amongst all living creatures and the environment in which they live in, ecology in its broadest sense. Ethical values cannot be separated from biological facts. Potter also argued that, quote, we are in great need for a land ethic, a wildlife ethic, a population ethic, a consumption ethic, an urban ethic, an international ethic, a geriatric ethic, and so on. All of them involve bioethics. End of quote. There are many problematic situations that we encounter as a society, including limited resources like water and energy, the pressures of population growth and an aging population, the lack of adequate and decent housing, our disrespect and damage of nature, global warming, and climate change. In the face of these many problems, scientific knowledge and philosophical values have to be combined and transcribed into practical wisdom so that knowledge can be used to address holistic human needs. Knowledge has to strengthen the individual while simultaneously strengthening society. Bioethics advocates a concept of progress that places an equal emphasis on the individual and the collective. Individual progress and societal progress are interdependent and, ideally, they are pursued in such a way as to be equitably and sustainably in balance. Over the course of its 48 years of existence, bioethics has become one of the most highly developed fields in the study of applied ethics. A major contribution was made to bioethics by Tom Beauchamp and James Childress, according to Professor Jorge José Ferrer, when they proposed four general principles as the basic pillars on which a bioethical analysis could be built. One, respect for the autonomy of our choices. Two, non-maleficence. Three, beneficence. And four, distributive justice. As discussed by Professor Ferrer, these principles do not establish specific standards for all the situations we face daily, but by using the principles as a basic framework for deliberation, we can generate the precise details that will guide our actions in a situation at hand. Within this framework, according to Diego Garcia, the deliberation process should take into consideration facts, conflicted values, the course of action or duty, and finally, the best solution that is also in accordance with norms established by the law. Respect for the autonomy of our choices assumes that our actions are taken freely and with informed consent.
To determine if any given action is autonomous, it has to be intentional, understood, and free from external controls or influences. Non-maleficence entails an intentional abstention from causing harm. Beneficence requires us to contribute to the well-being of others and to act positively on their behalf. Distributive justice is based on the fair distribution of scarce resources. A material principle of distributive justice is based on the fair distribution of scarce resources, providing everyone with the material means to develop essential capabilities for a productive life. The Right to Housing Housing that is decent, affordable, and secure is one of the key factors in the life of every human being. It is a social determinant of health. In the words of the Supreme Court of the United States, quote, housing is a necessary of life, end of quote. Without housing, it is not possible to exercise any other right. Matthew Desmond has argued that housing is the center of life. It is the shelter where we rest from all external pressures, the place where we can be ourselves. He adds that housing creates psychological stability, which permits people to invest in their homes and in their social relationships. It is also a crucial element for young people to achieve academic excellence and to complete their studies. The stability that housing provides to individuals and to families is the basis for a supportive community where residents are in control. The opposite is also true. When families or individuals lack decent, affordable, and secure housing, they tend also to lack stability in their homes, family life, neighborhood, school, job, and possessions. Housing is such an important matter that it is included in the International Declaration of Human Rights, adopted by the United Nations in 1948. Article 25 declared housing to be one of the necessary components for a decent and adequate life. Within the framework of human rights, housing is related to solidarity in the sense that people live in homes, but they are also part of a neighborhood and part of a community with an established social fabric and their own web of relations. We can infer, therefore, that housing is an overreaching concept that surpasses the physical aspects of a living space. Safe, decent, affordable housing gives people the stability and ability to build durable social networks and to live in vibrant communities. In October 2016, the third UN World Conference on Housing and Sustainable Urban Development, held in Quito, Ecuador, endorsed the new urban agenda. Basing itself on the estimate that by 2030, six out of 10 people will live in cities, the new urban agenda highlights the relationship between urbanization and equitable development, where the politics and strategies of urban renovation are intertwined with the creation of jobs, expanded opportunities for generating a livelihood, and the improvement of quality of life. Housing is at the center of the new urban agenda, as it is in another UN document, the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development and the Objectives for Sustainable Goals, SDGs. Sustainable Development Goal 1111.1 seeks to ensure that by 2030 all people will have access to adequate, safe, and affordable housing 
access to basic services, and all slums will have been improved. Despite international acknowledgement of the importance of housing, however, recognized by sovereign countries and the United Nations alike, the reality experienced by millions of people around the world contradicts this acknowledgement. According to Clerk, 40 years after the first Habitat Conference, which became the foundation for the UN's Habitat program, close to 100 million people now reside in substandard settlements or live on the streets. Stigmatized and negatively stereotyped, these people are deprived of essential services and basic infrastructure. Millions of others have been displaced, stripped of their homes due to inadequate planning or disasters associated with climate change. Or they have been forced to live in refugee camps as a result of war or discriminatory public policies. Numerous people who do have a roof over their heads are forced to live in a disgraceful and inadequate manner as a result of poverty, inequity, discrimination, and environmental injustice. There are also many communities of low-income people who live in constant fear of being displaced because of market pressures. This is especially true in informal settlements where hundreds, sometimes thousands, of people are living on land to which they have neither a secure right of ownership nor a secure right of use. Similarly, extreme natural events like hurricanes, floods, wildfires, rising seas, or droughts can cause the involuntary displacement of low-income people who are then prevented from returning and rebuilding by a combination of public policy and private speculation by disaster capitalists who have snatched up newly cleared land. Many developed and underdeveloped countries treat land and housing as luxuries for those who can pay the price. They become objects of speculation, unlimited accumulation, and wealth generation. When land and housing are viewed in such a way, i.e. as private commodities rather than common necessities, they are far from being treated as a human right. Housing as a Cause of Segregation and Discrimination There is a crisis in housing that affects people all over the world. The bioethical analysis presented in this essay is valid wherever the inadequacy of housing exists, affecting individuals and families in many countries. For the purposes of the current analysis, we will focus on the housing situation and its trajectory in the United States. Discriminatory practices in the USA have been manifested in all spheres, public and private, but especially in the production, financing, and regulation of housing. In his important book, The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America, Richard Rothstein describes how the federal government developed housing during World War I for individuals working in defense-related industries that is, for those who worked in shipyards and ammunition plants. The 83 housing projects that were developed by the government across 26 different states were occupied by 170,000 white workers and their families. Black workers were excluded from these housing projects, even from those developed close to industrial sites where black people represented a significant percentage of the workforce. During the same period, 
policies established by the federal government and by state governments imposed segregationist practices, forcing black people to live in overcrowded slums far from city centers and employment opportunities. Urban planners designed neighborhoods that were reserved for white people. The black population was intentionally excluded or removed from those areas. During World War II, the housing shortage became acute for both low-income and moderate-income families in the United States. As a response, the New Deal policies implemented by Franklin Delano Roosevelt led to the creation of the first public housing projects for civilians who were not part of a defense program. Race determined the program's design. Separate housing projects were built for black people, who were completely excluded from projects designated for white people. In the rare cases where both races occupied the same project, buildings were segregated by race. The first project of the Public Works Administration, Techwood Homes in Atlanta, inaugurated in 1935, is a prime example of the application and impact of this discriminatory policy. Techwood Homes was built on land where a racially diverse community of 1,600 families had long existed, composed of both black and white families. In order to build the new housing complex, the federal government demolished the structures where those families lived and replaced them with 604 housing units, all of which were reserved exclusively for white people. This government action not only created a segregated community where there had once been an integrated community, it forced displaced families to look for housings in places where black Americans already lived in overcrowded conditions, intensifying racial segregation in Atlanta. Government policy also caused the creation of new slums as the only housing option for black and economically poor people. The Housing Handbook, written by the U.S. Housing Authority as a guide for states, established that the racial nature of communities had to be preserved. This justified segregation in places where it already existed and implemented segregation in places where it did not exist. The Handbook also reinforced the prevalent belief that any movement of black people into communities made up of white people could threaten property values. Much of the housing produced using funds provided by the Housing Law of 1949 and its subsequent amendments promoted even more segregation. In 1984, according to Rothstein, investigative reporters from the Dallas Morning News visited federally funded public housing projects in 47 metropolitan areas of the United States. The reporters found that close to 10 million residents were living in projects that were segregated by race. They also found that in projects where residents were predominantly white, the facilities, amenities, services, and maintenance were superior compared to those projects where black people lived. Nowadays, segregationist policies and practices might not be manifested in such an obvious manner. Many are disguised but they combine and conspire to make it practically impossible for low-income people of color to have access to decent housing. Included among these discriminatory policies and practices are exclusionary zoning, 
exorbitant pricing of land and housing, the development of gated neighborhoods, and the lack of public investment and private lending in poverty-stricken areas, especially in areas where people of color reside. Likewise, the quality of public infrastructure and government services offered in poverty-stricken areas is usually inferior to that offered in areas where people with greater economic power reside. Every day, fewer people have access to adequate housing. According to the renowned architect and urban planner Jamie Lerner, the lack of access to housing is one of the main causes of poverty in the United States and one of the country's most pressing issues. In the same vein, Matthew Desmond from Harvard University, in an ethnographic study conducted in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, found that families had seen their wages come to a standstill and even lowered while the cost of housing had increased dramatically. Families that were part of this study became more impoverished with each eviction. Desmond stated that, to this day, the majority of low-income families who rent their housing are forced to spend more than half of their household income on rent and utilities, and at least one of every four low-income renters must spend more than 70% of their household income for housing. Millions of people in the United States are evicted every year because they cannot pay their rent. They are displaced through eviction notices rendered by the court or informal evictions occurring on the fringes of the law. In 2013, one of eight tenant farmers in the United States could not pay their rent. A similar number were sure that they would eventually be evicted. Renters are not alone in facing the possibility of losing their homes. This can happen to low-income homeowners, too. According to Gottsteiner, between 2007 and 2013, 10 million North Americans lost their homes due to foreclosures. The Great Recession harmed people of color far more than it hurt white people. African Americans, Hispanic Americans, and Asian Americans experienced, in the words of James Carr and Katrin Anneker, quote, a catastrophic loss of wealth as a result of the burst of the national house price bubble in 2006 and the ensuing foreclosure crisis that started in early 2007, both of which have had a disproportionate impact on families and communities of color. End of quote. In Puerto Rico, according to government statistics, 40,136 mortgages were foreclosed in the decade between 2008 and 2018, which likely means that the same number of families lost their homes. Discriminatory policies, practices, and patterns must be tackled, whether by governmental intervention or by private action, putting an end to them. It is also the responsibility of individuals who believe in racial and economic justice to denounce discrimination and to search for solutions that alleviate the disparity in the provision of adequate and decent housing for people whose income does not enable them to have access to it. The Bioethics of Community Land Trusts the policies that affect housing are tied to policies on land use. The different approaches and regulations on real estate determine who benefits, or not, from the use of land, 
from the opportunities provided by land, and from the wealth that land produces. It is also important to highlight that land-related decisions are influenced by the values and ethical perspectives of those who are making use of the land. If land is considered a common good, an inheritance received from past generations and entrusted into our care for future generations, our actions in using land will be shaped and constrained in accordance with that perspective. Conversely, if we consider land, and whatever is built upon it, to be a marketable good, subject to price speculation and social exclusion, we will act accordingly. This latter perspective is prevalent throughout the world, despite consequences that have proven detrimental and hurtful for millions of people who lack secure access to land and housing. This is a social problem on a global scale, requiring solutions that take into account both the personal needs of individuals, for whom adequate housing is essential, and the collective needs of the larger community. Such measures must be sensitive to finding this balance, while also having an ethical, axiological focus on creating the conditions for a decent life. The CLT model, in this regard, is an ethical model that satisfies an individual's need for safe, decent, and affordable housing, even as it takes into consideration the surrounding community. Individual interests are secured through personal ownership of the housing structure. Collective interests are secured through the community's ownership, control, and care of the land on which the homes are built. Ownership and management of the land in the CLT are carried out by a nonprofit organization with a structure of democratic governance that is sensitive to the community's needs. Both the housing structure and the land are placed beyond the reach of market speculation, which ensures that families of moderate income or low income, no matter their race or origin, can exercise a right to decent housing. Since the housing continues to be affordable in perpetuity, that right is protected and extended far into the future. It is important to mention, for the purpose of this essay, the values that constitute the roots of the CLT model. Davis has documented the origins and development of the CLT in the United States, a model that emerged in the 1970s from the civil rights movement in the American South and from an earlier seedbed of theoretical ideas, political movements, and social experiments that had accumulated over many decades. Everything began with a different perspective on how land should be owned and used recognizing the intrinsic value of land as a shared inheritance, rejecting the speculative buying and selling of land, and using land to capture wealth for the common benefit of all residents, not for the exclusive benefit of a few landowners. Homes could rightfully belong to individuals, but land rightfully belonged to the community, which had a shared responsibility to nurture and preserve it for future generations. This principle of finding and sustaining an equitable balance between the individual and the community is at the heart of bioethics. It is at the heart of the CLT as well. As far back as 1982, in one of the first books written about this new model of tenure, the authors described why a CLT was needed and how it worked in the following way. Quote, 
Our present property arrangements are not working well enough. It makes sense to look for alternative approaches that are based on respect for the legitimate interests of both individuals and communities, and that provide an effective means of balancing these interests. The Community Land Trust is one such approach. End of quote. It is also worth emphasizing the democratic and inclusive character of the governance of most CLTs. The model strengthens and empowers community members, allowing them to exert a degree of control over the lands held by the CLT, the structures that are built on these lands, and the stewardship services that are provided for the long-term care of the buildings and the people who occupy them. The organization has a constant presence, since its corporate membership and governance structure are composed of residents from the community it serves. This relationship is also nurtured by engaging a body of informed people in the organization's development decisions and policy-making processes. The CLT model has three intrinsic elements, namely sustainable community development that is led by an organization accountable to its community, development that is carried out mainly for the purpose of providing housing that will remain affordable in perpetuity for people who are low income, and development that occurs on community-owned land that the market cannot reach. This mixture of elements enables a place-based community to maintain its physical integrity, to preserve its cultural inheritance, and to protect the land's natural attributes for future generations. According to Davis, Behind and beyond this basic structure, what is sometimes known as the classic CLT, there lies great adaptability, allowing organizations to adjust the model according to the needs and preferences of their own community. Notwithstanding such versatility, however, the model is imbued with similar values each time a CLT is established. These values arise from a sense of responsibility to prevent the displacement of vulnerable populations and to fulfill the basic needs of people who have been excluded from the political and economic mainstream. This is not welfare, but personal improvement and collective empowerment, a program that is focused on the development of humans as citizens exercising their rights and their duties. The CLT that arose on the mainland of the United States has been an inspiration for community organizations in other countries. This includes two very different CLTs that are geographically distant, but rather similar in terms of their purposes. One of these CLTs was organized in San Juan, Puerto Rico, and the other in Voy, Kenya. The purpose of both was to formalize and standardize the relationship with land for residents who were living in informal settlements without land titles. Their CLTs gave them security of tenure as individuals, but it also allowed them to take collective control of their own development and the environment surrounding them, preventing the involuntary displacement of low-income people. The ownership and use of land in the CLT are far from the dominant tradition of treating land as a commodity, subject to market pricing and speculative hoarding. CLTs live and practice a land ethic that is closer to what Aldo Leopold had urged in a Sand County Almanac, treating land as an inheritance that is entrusted to our stewardship for future generations.
the common ground of the CLT is put to use for the common good. Furthermore, when land is placed under the control of an organization that is accountable to a particular community, it can be managed and developed with a sense of permanent care and shared responsibility by people who are caring for something that does not personally belong to them. This land ethic is combined with the attention that is also owed to the person who will make use of the structure or improvements on the land. According to data provided by the Grounded Solutions Network, covering 2,844 families or individuals living in home ownership units in 32 CLTs across the United States of America, 63% are occupied by female-headed households. Two legal entitlements coexist harmoniously within the same form of tenure, the collective entitlement of land under community governance and the individual entitlement of the structural improvements owned and occupied by the person who acquires or builds it. Both contribute to the empowerment of the community that surrounds this property, strengthening the social fabric and creating a foundation for personal well-being and collaboration. At the same time, this mixed ownership model of tenure contributes to the creation of environmentally conscious communities that have the ability to manage change and are committed to the sustainable development of their surroundings. This has been the experience of many CLTs, especially the one created by the Caño Martín Peña communities in San Juan, Puerto Rico. The Caño Martín Peña CLT is making possible the Martín Peña Canal Ecosystem Restoration Project, an environmental justice project that will benefit not only the Caño Martín Peña communities, but also the capital city of San Juan. For many years, highly contaminated water from this canal has flooded the impoverished houses of the residents of the adjacent Caño Martín Peña communities. In order to control flooding, the canal had to be dredged. As a consequence, many households needed to be relocated and new infrastructure needed to be built. As the owner and steward of lands along the canal that were formerly owned by the government, the CLT has made them available for the relocation of residents and for the construction of the appropriate infrastructure that will keep the canal's water clean after dredging. Making land available for such purposes was a conscious and conscientious decision of the CLT and of the residents who live on the CLT's land. It is worth noting that market-oriented, individual land ownership would have prevented the Caño Martín Peña communities from realizing these benefits – clean water, a dredged canal, and the permanence of the communities in an area that people have been calling home for a century. As important as the contribution of CLTs in terms of the conservation of the environment, we should also pay attention to what CLT organizations do for the people who benefit from a CLT's sensible management and stewardship of land and other assets. Applying the four general principles that constitute the framework for bioethics that were introduced at the beginning of this essay, respect for the autonomy of our choices, non-maleficence, beneficence, and distributive justice, we may put in perspective the ethics of the CLT model.
Thus, CLT organizations provide community assets for low-income families and marginalized communities who would otherwise not have had access to such resources and to the benefits they entail. When a low-income family or individual acquires a home from a CLT, their decision is taken voluntarily after a well-informed process about the structure of the CLT model, its purpose of providing lasting affordability and benefits for the community, and the implications of this arrangement for the buyer. The CLT educates and alerts the family or individual about resale restrictions in order to keep homes affordable for future generations of low-income buyers, the governance structure of the CLT that requires community engagement, and the fact that the CLT retains ownership of the land while the family or individual purchases only the improvement built on the land. CLT organizations make it possible for low-income families to buy and to enjoy a home without jeopardizing other important necessities. In this sense, the CLT is complying with the principle of non-maleficence. The principle of beneficence is also widely met by the CLT model since it provides an effective way to meet one of the most important and urgent needs of every human being, that is, to attain a home. But CLT organizations go farther, for they are also creating jobs, promoting quality of life, creating energy-efficient homes, and revitalizing neighborhoods. Market-oriented practices have proven to be a failure in meeting the housing needs of low-income and moderate-income families and individuals. In a market environment, there is neither fairness nor equality when a buyer lacks the resources to acquire or sustain a home. Mortgage banks and other financial institutions have a single priority, that is, to make money for their investors. CLT organizations, on their part, have made it possible for poor people to attain and keep decent and quality homes that are within their economic means. And at the same time, the CLT model has helped these families or individuals to build wealth and to enhance their future. The question that guides a bioethical analysis is the same question that drives us to ask ourselves and to determine what is right. When deliberating over the negative consequences of treating land as a commodity, whether in the provision of housing or in the preservation of farmland, there is no doubt that a CLT, in its ethical management of land, is more likely to produce results that ensure both a right to housing and an opportunity to promote food security. We should give serious consideration to the CLT model. Said reasoning is supported by the fact that, at the moment, the CLT model is helping to alleviate inequity in the provision of adequate and decent housing for thousands of people whose income does not allow them to have access to these resources. This is confirmed by the growing number of CLTs being organized throughout the world, of which the preceding chapters of this book provide testimony and bear witness. This has been an audio presentation of a published chapter from the book entitled On Common Ground. To order the entire volume of 26 essays, authored by scholars and practitioners from a dozen different countries, or to learn more about the International Community Land Trust movement, 
please visit the website of the Center for CLT Innovation. We can be found at www.cltweb.org. Thank you for listening.